Hello once again and welcome to the Parish Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Father Mike Lee, along with my dear friend and producer, Doc Allen. We are in the Easter season and Easter is a time of hope and joy, when darkness is overcome with light and we can uncover the spiritual gifts of this season. For many, Easter is a spiritual time of reflection and renewal. We can draw strength from the knowledge that God has overcome death and will always be with us. We can also find comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of hope and resurrection, and that he is always there to provide us with the strength and courage we need to face life's challenges. The spiritual gifts of Easter can help us to renew our faith, to be thankful for the blessings we have in our lives, and to look for ways to bring light into the darkness. Let us use these special spiritual gifts to enrich our lives and to be a beacon of hope and light in the world. We will explore the Easter story of this short time out. You're listening to the Parish Insights Podcast. We want to give you hope and encouragement to help you maintain your physical, spiritual and mental well-being. One day a small opening appeared on a cocoon. A man sat and watched the butterfly for several hours as it struggled to force its body through that little opening. Then it seemed to stop making any progress. It appeared as if it had got as far as it could and it could go no further, so the man decided to help the butterfly. He took a pair of scissors and snipped off the remaining bit of the cocoon. The butterfly then emerged easily but it had a swollen body and small, shriveled wings. The man continued to watch the butterfly because he expected that, at any moment, the wings would expand to be able to support the body, which would contract in time, neither happened. In fact, the butterfly spent the rest of its life crawling around with a swollen body and shriveled wings. It never was able to fly. What the man in his kindness and haste did not understand, was that the restricting cocoon and the struggle required for the butterfly to get through the opening, were God's way of forcing the fluid from the body of the butterfly into its wings so that it would be ready for flight once it achieved its freedom from the cocoon. Sometimes struggles are exactly what we need in our life. If God allowed us to go through our life without any obstacles, it would cripple us. We would not be as strong as we could have been. We could never fly. Now let's get back to our host Father Mike Lee as we explore the story of Easter. In the reign of Caesar Augustus there appeared a remarkable character on the stage of action. On reaching manhood his claims included the restoring of sight to the blind, of hearing to the deaf, of health to the sick, and even of life to the dead. That he did these wonderful works, or appeared to do them, seemed to be conceded by all. At first the people only marveled, but gradually they formed into two distinct parties. The one party believed that the works were done by divine power, the other insisted that it was through satanic powers, or through trickery of some sort, as he was pronounced a deceiver. The person who was the cause of this divided sentiment was Jesus. Those who rallied about him were for the most part plain, honest people who thought for themselves. Among them were many, who with a wholehearted independence had formerly rushed off into dissipation, but who now were leading reformed lives. These constituted what may be called the popular party. Arrayed against Jesus were, with few exceptions, the chief men of the nation, together with a hot-headed rabble, ever ready to do the bidding of their priests, 
and the Pharisees being here the ruling element, for they were the spiritual guides of the uneducated masses. This may be designated as the Pharisaic party. Feeling ran high. Events followed one another in rapid succession, until on a Friday afternoon Jesus was hanging on a cross between two robbers. The Pharisaic party was jubilant, tri-triumphant. The popular party was broken and scattered, nothing remaining of it except some personal followers whose hopes of a kingdom were all blasted, notwithstanding the fact that their leader had foretold his crucifixion, and had even declared that he would rise the third day. His words they remembered, but they seemed to have thought that his language was in nature parabolic and figurative, for he often spoke in parables and figures. How could he rise? For to make assurance of his death doubly sure, his very heart had been pierced by a soldier's lance. All that his faithful friends were now concerned about was to give him decent and kindly burial. With heavy hearts they laid him away in a sepulcher hewn out of the solid rock. With great exultation, under the circumstances, could the scribes and the Pharisees refer sarcastically to the king of the Jews, and yet they were not entirely at ease. Recollecting the prophecy of a resurrection, they were afraid lest his disciples should abduct the body, and then claim that the prediction had been fulfilled. They, therefore, had everything made secure, the seal of the great Roman Empire being applied to the closed tomb, and a military guard being appointed to prevent by soldierly vigilance any fraud. No more chance for deception. The deceiver was hemmed in at last. Exposure was certain. With the tomb sealed, and with soldiers pacing constantly to and fro, the world would be imposed upon no longer. Friday night, all of Saturday, and Saturday night passed. Sunday morning there was great excitement. Wild rumors were flying through the air. People were running here and there, hardly knowing where they were going. Soldiers gathered in little knots, and talked in low and hurried tones. On the way from the city to the sepulcher sped along a woman, followed by two men who soon outstripped her in the race. What was the news? Why, the body of Jesus was gone, the grave was empty. How could that be? Around the council hall, where were gathered the priests and rulers, it was reported that the previous night the guard all fell asleep and awoke to find the body gone. Here and there was a group of disciples, despondent, because all that remained of their master had been borne away by hostile hands, as they supposed, to be laid they knew not where. And so the multitude was agitated by the conflicting reports, until there came another message of a resurrection, the Lord is risen indeed. What was the truth? If Christ actually rose, let the evidence be produced. Let us have the facts, whether they go for or against a resurrection. Call up the witnesses. First, let the soldiers, who watched at the rocky vault, take the stand. What is their testimony? His disciples came by night, and stole him away while we slept. But it was to prevent that very thing that they were placed on duty, and that circumstance of itself throws some discredit upon their story. Then the Roman punishment for a soldier who fell asleep at his post was death and yet they would have us believe that not one but all of them dropped off into a deep slumber. They were asleep, were they? How, then, did they know that the disciples had been there? 
They must have dreamed it, and of course dreams are very reliable testimony. Where did they get that extra money which they were known to have? There certainly was a strong appearance of their having been bribed to concoct the story they told. They were particular, too, to explain that it was by night when the whole thing happened, and when they fell asleep. Had it not been for that explanatory clause, by night, they might be supposed to have been slumbering at noonday. How often do people volunteer information which is incriminating, and which is a sure sign of guilt? A few years ago a Connecticut murderess, Lydia Sherman, escaped from jail, and in arresting her the officer without a word simply pointed to an article in her possession with the initials, L.S., whereupon she quickly spoke up, that does not say Lydia Sherman. He had not said that it did, he merely called attention to the initials, and her gratuitous explanation proved that she was the very one wanted. So the soldiers volunteered information, added a saving or explanatory clause, which plainly showed that they were falsifying. His disciples came by night, while we slept just as if they might have been sleeping in broad daylight. Let the soldiers leave the stand. No court can receive such evidence as they give. Let Mary Magdalene be the next witness. What is her story is gathered from the records. She had been a devoted follower of Jesus, and a complete revolution had been wrought in her character. She was present at the cross. She saw the place of burial Friday afternoon. She hastened home to prepare sweet spices, with which, when Saturday of the Jewish Sabbath was passed, she might return to embalm the body of her Lord. At daybreak on Sunday she with other women approached the sepulcher to perform the last sad expression of affection for the dead, somewhat as we carry flowers to decorate the brown earth, before the grass has grown green over the mound that covers some dear one, and before the heart has forgotten its grief. It was a question with the sorrowing women how the great stone could be removed, but on drawing near Mary saw it was already rolled back. In great alarm she ran to tell Peter and John that the Jews had probably removed the body, she knew not where. She followed back after the two disciples, who hastened to the spot, and she remained weeping at the tomb after they had gone away. As she wept because they had taken away her Lord, a person whom she supposed to be the gardener asked her the cause of her sorrow, and she begged him, if he had removed the body, to let her take the precious remains. To this the apparent stranger replied with the simple mention of her name, Mary, and the familiar address brought from her a rapturous recognition. She hastened to tell the disciples that she had seen the Lord, no longer dead but risen, while they called her words only idle talk, and made no secret of their disbelief. Such is the testimony of Mary Magdalene, and strong evidence it is. It shows no appearance of being manufactured. She did not have certain hopes, and then make her story fit in place. On the contrary, everything was against her expectations. She expected to cover with spices the remains of her master, but she was disappointed in this task of reverential love. Her first thought, on seeing the stone rolled away, was that the Jews had stolen the body, and that accordingly was the first report which she carried back to the disciples. Not till she had actually seen them himself, did she announce that he had risen. Thus so far from trying to manufacture evidence, she could hardly be made to believe the revelation of her own eyes.
Had she gone to the grave with a strong desire to see Jesus alive, the desire might have been father to the belief. In a highly nervous condition, she might have imagined to be a fact which she fondly hoped would be one. But instead of expecting to find Jesus risen, she expected to find him dead, and she was proposing to anoint the dead. Nor was she, on account of what is sometimes termed feminine susceptibility, persuaded into her new belief by the stronger, more determined masculine nature. She, for instance, did not owe her belief to the disciples, for she was convinced before them, and they were the ones who disbelieved her, when she carried to them the news of the resurrection. So that, there seems to be no flaw in the evidence of Mary Magdalene. Her story is plain, simple, straightforward. Let her pass from the stand. The next to be called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, will be Cleopa and a companion of his, who on a Sunday afternoon took that historic walk to Emmaus. They had been informed of the rumors circulated by the women, and of its partial confirmation by Peter and John, who certainly had found the grave empty, but who as yet had not seen the Lord himself, and therefore the two doubted, at a friendly meal they had the proof of their own eyes. Their familiar narrative, whether true or not, at any rate runs along in a most natural way. There is at least the appearance of truth in all the minute circumstances given, the setting out on foot to a village, the stranger coming up to them, their surprise at his ignorance and his reproof of their unbelief, their invitation to him to stop with them overnight as his movements indicated that he was going on past where they were turning into abide, the sitting down to a table for supper, the asking of a blessing and the wonderful revelation therein, the hurrying back to Jerusalem, the going to a meeting of disciples there, the excited greeting exchanged, all these details show genuineness. A fabrication would not have brought in so many little side incidents, which are related without any apparent purpose, and which had nothing to do with the main issue. Cleopa and his friend evidently recited real events, and did not ingeniously weave together a tissue of falsehoods in support of a pious fraud. Then at that first Easter evening meeting of disciples, Tyo reluctant they were to believe the story of the two who came hurrying back from Emmaus. How slow likewise they were to receive the testimony of Peter who declared to them that there had been an appearance to him also on that same Sunday. They were all talking excitedly together, and when in the midst of the animated discussion Jesus suddenly appeared to them, they thought it was a spirit, a ghost, until he ate in their presence like any other person with flesh and bones, with a veritable existence, and they were compelled to give credence to such a palpable manifestation. But there was one persistent doubter, let him be called up let Thomas take the stand. He had lost all hope. He had given up everything. He refused to meet with the other disciples on that first Sunday night. A whole week he went about, a rank skeptic. He was acquainted with the reports of the resurrection, but he rejected them utterly. He would not accept the testimony of those with whom he had been intimately associated, and that, too, though they went to him personally, and declared most solemnly that they had with their own eyes seen the Lord. He would not be satisfied with any evidence short of putting his own fingers in the prints of the nails and in the pierced side. On the return of the next Sunday evening, he was offered by Jesus, who appeared again, the very proof he had demanded, 
Whereupon there came that burst of conviction, My Lord and my God. Such is the evidence of a man naturally skeptical, of one who was sure to see all the difficulties of the case, who refused in so important a matter to rely upon the judgment of his most trusted friends, who declared that he must see and handle for himself. Such testimony in the estimation of the world is worth something. It is not the fancy of a good but excitable nature. It is not the opinion of a credulous mind, but it is the verdict of a sound, cautious judge. Shall any more witnesses be sworn on this case? We might, if necessary, bring forward seven men, who on the shore after a night's fishing on the lake, breakfasted and talked with Christ. We could present the evidence of James, who was an own brother of the Lord, who still remained an unbeliever at the time of the crucifixion, but who had such an indisputable manifestation made to him, that he at last was convinced. He was long the head of the Jerusalem church, while he also wrote part of the New Testament in the epistle bearing his name. We could cite more than five hundred, to whom there was a simultaneous appearance on an appointed mountain in Galilee, and of whom Paul, writing more than twenty years afterward, said that most of them were still living, ready to give any who might be doubters, as they had formerly been, their personal testimony of a sure conviction, from what they had seen and heard. Indeed the appearances of Christ were at intervals for all of forty days, at the end of which time he was seen to ascend bodily into heaven. Still later, Saul the persecutor was transformed into Paul the apostle by a miraculous appearance unto him on the way to Damascus. Taking all this mass of evidence, it stands overwhelmingly in favor of the resurrection, if only the witnesses were trustworthy. That they were good and noble, that they were sincere, no one doubts. They were willing to die, and some did die for the resurrection. But they may have been deluded, it is suggested, for the history of the different religions shows that multitudes have died for a cherished doctrine. Now on doctrines, opinions, people may be mistaken, but the resurrection was not a question of doctrine or opinion, but of fact. To us even, it is not like original sin, for instance, a matter of opinion, but of testimony, and to the eyewitnesses themselves it was not a question of testimony, but of fact. The senses, sight, and touch, were the tests, and with such tests the first witnesses declared the resurrection to have actually occurred. But may not a man die on a question of fact even, and still die for a falsehood? May not a murderer die with an assertion of innocence, while his guilt is positively known? Yes, but it is with the hope of saving his life, that is, it is for the sake of gain. But what gain was there to the disciples on the question of fact? Nothing but suffering and death, in other words, there was no gain. We therefore, can conclude that no event in history is better attested than the resurrection of Christ. The proof could not very well be stronger. The only way Todd escaped the force of their testimony is to suppose that the witnesses were laboring under some hallucination, just as now sometimes an individual imagines he sees things which are only the creations of his disordered fancy. There are fatal objections to this theory. Hallucinations are apt to occur in the dark, whereas the appearances of Christ were generally in the daytime. Of the ten recorded manifestations, only two of them are mentioned as occurring at night, and those were at early evening meetings. 
Moreover, hallucinations are not likely to affect so many minds exactly alike. It was under different circumstances and by different persons that Christ was seen. At the same time, the vision of him was granted to a sufficient number simultaneously to make their evidence mutually corroborative. One person might have been mistaken, two or three might have been, but more than five hundred are not likely to have been. Nor could the resurrection have been merely a resuscitation. It was no recovery from an apparent death, from a swoon. After a scourging which was brutal in the extreme, after the sinking under the cross, after six hours of agony thereon, after the sword thrust when the lifeblood followed the removal of the cold steel, and after a portion of three days in a closed tomb, it could have been no case of suspended animation. Besides, if Christ did not really die and rise again, he ought to have corrected that impression, which certainly was made. A good man would not have let any such deception go abroad. It is with glad confidence, therefore, we can say at each recurring Easter, the Lord is risen indeed. We can accept the conclusion of the famous Dr. Arnold, I have been used for many years to study the history of other times, and to examine and weigh the evidences of those who have written about them, and I know of no one fact in the history of mankind, which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort, to the mind of the fair inquirer, than that Christ died, and rose again from the dead. That's our podcast for now. I encourage you to attend services this Easter or to take time to reflect on what the meaning of Easter means to you. I'm Father Mike Lee. Please be kind and look out for each other. You have been listening to the Parish Insights Podcast with Father Mike Lee. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to visit our website and leave a comment if you wish. Until next time so long.